Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening in. Welcome back to the Roots and Routes podcast with Missouri Humanities. In this season, we're exploring what has influenced the movement of people into, out of, and within our state, as well as how movement has impacted Missouri. Our conversation for this episode features Patrick Murphy, an author and former television producer with 9PBS in St. Louis. He's penned three books, Candymen, the story of Switzer's licorice, The Irish in St. Louis, From Shanty to Lace Curtain, and Places to Pray, Holy Sites in Catholic Missouri. We discuss the immigrant experience in Missouri, his inspiration behind writing about people and places, and why it's imperative that we continue to share stories of those who came before us and chose Missouri to put down roots, especially when it wasn't exactly easy to do so. Join us as we dig into his writing journey and his inspiration. Welcome back, everybody, to the Roots and Routes podcast. I am here with Patrick Murphy. He's a local author, and we are going to dig into some of his writing journey and telling stories about some people and places here in the St. Louis area and beyond. So, Patrick, thanks so much for being here. That was fun. Yeah. Um, so, Patrick, you are the author of three books. Um, we have Candymen, the story of Switzer's licorice. Is it Switzer's? Right? The pronunciation right? Switzer's? Okay. Switzer's Licorice, The Irish in St. Louis, From Shanty to Lace Curtain, and Places to Pray, Holy Sites in Catholic Missouri. So I'd love to kind of start us off with, um, you you weren't always an author, right? No, no. So what's your journey to to writing these stories? Well, in my regular job, my day job, (laughs) I was doing a lot of writing anyway, because I was producing... Uh, documentaries and different kinds of television shows for Channel 9, KETC. So um, I retired officially from Channel 9 a few years ago, but I still continue to do projects, you know, for them, you know, documentaries and different Mm -hmm. kinds of of shows. Um, And uh, I had the time, finally, because TV's just one deadline crashing at you after another. And when I retired, I had more time to write and write about whatever I wanted to. So some of the subjects, a lot of the subjects that we were doing documentaries on for Channel 9 were all based around local history or uh, local identity, how the, how the region sees itself, um, how, how different kinds of people got here, where did they come from, mm-hmm. why are things the way they are now. So I thought it would be fun to, to write a book. And I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other industry, totally different from broadcasting. But I thought the best way to do it was to call, like anything in life, you want to do something, call somebody up who's done it, mm-hmm. and they can tell you the best way to get into it. So one particular writer that I knew, her name was Candace O'Connor, and she'd written a book on the West End, and she dealt with Reedy Press. And I just called her up, and, and I'd worked with her on another project where she was writing a book, and I was doing a documentary to accompany it. And she said, oh, Reedy Press is great. I mean, that's definitely your press, Josh Stevens over there and, and the gang. And I said, well, great. How do you get, 
how do you get Reedy Press to publish your book <laughs> right, anyway? Yeah. Why, she said, well, why don't you write a few chapters and a little kind of a, a synopsis of what you think the book would be about and send it to Josh. And if he likes it, you know, maybe you can take it all further. Mm -hmm. So I did and, uh, and he liked it and we got together and, and actually became friends in the process mm -hmm. too. So we, uh, we did uh, a book called Candyman, which is the story of Switzer's licorice. And nowadays you might have to be a certain age to remember Switzer's licorice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you remember Switzer's licorice? <laughs> Admittedly, no. <laughs> okay, well, so, well, let me tell you kids, Switzer's licorice was a big deal. <laughs> it, was, it was this old building built in the 1870s and it was on the Eads Bridge. And it had a giant sign on it a giant licorice bar and Switzers across the top. And that whole area down there where the arch grounds is mm -hmm. now, yeah. uh, that was that all smelled like licorice. And, oh, and again, people of a certain age, they go, Switzers licorice, yeah, I remember the smell. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and St. Louis was kind of proud of it because it was our national licorice brand and people all over the country you know, knew it. So it was one of St. Louis's claims to fame. But it was an interesting story because it, my dad worked there oh, okay. and his dad, my grandfather, and all of my grandfather's brothers worked there. And their father, Joe Murphy, came over from Dublin in the 1870s, came to St. Louis and started the company with a guy named Fred Switzer, mm -hmm. who was also Irish. Okay. It doesn't sound... Uh, I was going to say, Switzer doesn't I, sound very Irish. I know, but they lived in Germany for a long time, the family, like mm -hmm. in the 1700s. Sure. They moved to Ireland. So they lived like 150, 200 years in Ireland, mm -hmm. which made them... They were originally Schweitzer, and they changed the name oh. to Switzer. And I'm wondering, if they're trying to sound more Irish... <laughs> that wasn't the way to do it. <laughs> you could really take it a lot further. Mick Switzer, oh Switzer. Oh Switzer, I like that. <laughs> So uh, it was these two Irish families, my great-grandfather, and the, he, the reason he knew how to make candy was um, his family in Dublin had a candy shop on Capel Street, which is, I was actually there, I was in the building that was the candy store, it wasn't a candy store now. And um, they had this candy store and he was a kid there and he grew up and that's all he knew how to do was, was make candy. It was the famine years, but Ireland Dublin wasn't as hard hit as a lot of Ireland by the famine because a lot of wealthier people moved to Dublin to get away from the famine. Mm -hmm. So you could actually have the luxury of a candy store, yeah. even, even during the famine years. But he was into the Irish independence movement. He was Athenian. And in 1867, there was a revolution, uh, an uprising. In Ireland, they call them failed uprisings because they all <laughs> fell. And it was in the Wicklow Mountains south of Dublin, and they, uh, uh, it was an uprising. But the, the Irish, including my great-grandfather, they were just fighting with rocks and sticks. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, of course, the British had, like, real guns. And of those that they caught, they hanged. And my great-grandfather was about 17 years old. They got his name. And if they caught him, or when they caught him, they were going to hang him. Mm. So he laid low and got out of the country and came to America, arrived here about 1870. Wow. Ended up coming to St. Louis because St. Louis was a big candy making company. And started, they lived, lived in Cary Patch. Yeah. And 
probably with your family. Probably with the, my family. Down the street, too. <laughs> and uh, all the book signings and things I've done since then, everybody. Yeah. And my family's from Cary Patch, too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they first, had, and on the cover of the book is a picture with my Grand, great-grandfather and Fred Switzer on the cover with all of their employees in front of their first factory, which was on First Street, right between the legs of the Gateway Arch. Oh, how you know, cool. that whole area there yeah. used to be really cool warehouses. And in 1940, they tore it all down to put something up there. They didn't know what. They ended up putting the, the arch I was gonna there. Say, they certainly figured out what to put up right there, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. So it was the whole story of, of how they started making chocolates and caramels that were recipes from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Then they switched to licorice in the 19, uh, 1940 mm-hmm. when sugar rationing was about to oh, kick in because yeah. of World War II. And licorice doesn't need sugar because it's naturally sweet. Mm-hmm. And so like this was the center of our lives. When we were kids, we'd go down and hang out at the factory before it was an entertainment district and bars and things. Mm-hmm. It was just warehouses and factories. And this was in the late 50s, early 60s, and mm-hmm. I just have vivid memories of that. And my family was always talking about other people who had worked there, who died before I was born. And I always grew up feeling like the stories were so well told, I guess, that I always felt like I knew people, like my great-grandfather, even though they died before I was born. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like this great story. And my wife, Annie, was the one who really talked me into writing it. She said. For me, it was just a story of growing up as a kid and the people in my family. But she said, no, this has got a lot of elements for a good story. Mm-hmm. And, and it did, and we made a book out of it. And then it just seemed natural to turn it into a, a television documentary. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of the pictures, we had a lot of the interviews and the research. So I turned it into a documentary called Candyman. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went on and it actually won an Emmy. Wow. So that was kind of a good, basis yeah you know, right there a good entree into publishing I would say and it was so much fun <laughs> for me to learn about a new industry mm-hmm. because you know no matter what you do whether it's broadcast or publishing or the music industry or whatever there's a whole different vocabulary and a whole different like way of doing business and a lot of similarities mm-hmm. you know if if a company's successful so we we did that and it sold I guess enough books to warrant writing a second book. Yeah, so with that, that kind of gets, segues perfectly into what I was just about to say, which is, you know, I, in college, I wrote a lot, I think it was technically like my senior paper. They didn't call it a thesis. They called Mm -hmm. it your like senior seminar paper. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to write about the Irish in St. Louis. And I remember, like, you know, we had a university library, which was already a great resource, but we also had a a system where you could borrow books from other universities and... yeah. I remember searching for anything and everything that had to do with the Irish in Missouri, and there really wasn't a lot of because I hadn't written my because you hadn't written your book yet exactly. So I'm I'm particularly intrigued because I remember being somebody who couldn't find a lot of information about this particular immigrant group, and not just about them, but just mostly about their impact and and their stories here. So. Uh, yeah, I'd love you to talk more about how writing Candyman led you into really a, a. deep dive exactly. into the Irish in St. Louis. So uh, my buddy and publisher, Josh Stevens, and I, we get together every couple of weeks at the Garden Cafe in Webster Groves on Lockwood. That's mm-hmm. sort of the way, where the literati assembles. <laughs> and, and so let's write another book. And it just seemed natural because 
writing about the whole history of the Irish in St. Louis takes the little kind of like little micro view that I had mm -hmm. of my family and Kerry Patch and, and expand the subject so it would include other Irish neighborhoods in St. Louis, not just Kerry Patch, but Carondelet. Mm -hmm. That was a big Irish neighborhood. And uh, St. Uh, Columkill was down there. It's gone now. They're all gone. All the right, Irish yeah. churches are gone. Um, and uh, uh, Dogtown, of course. Mm -hmm. And like in writing the book, I wanted to know why they came here and, and why did they come specifically to St. Louis and what was it like and why did everybody hate them? Yes. And, <laughs> And and now why does everybody love them? Or love to be them? <laughs> oh, loves to be. Okay, yeah. Right. I mean, like I can't think of many ethnic groups off the top of my head where once a year everybody wants to be you mm -hmm. and wear green and kiss me, I'm whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and not have just one parade but two parades. Yes. So uh, that was just it, it was interesting, and it took the story of my family and put it in an, in an even bigger context. Like, why did they come here? Well, because there were these things called the penal laws in Ireland that even punished Protestants. Mm. And although most of the people who came to St. Louis and came to America were Catholic because they had it even worse than the Protestants. But Irish Protestants didn't have it real Great. good either, mm. no. And so the first Irish came over here in the 1820s and were middle class. A lot of them were Protestant and they were pretty successful and they wanted to set up businesses and they mingled well and married above them, which the Irish like to do. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> married above them. And, and a lot of them became millionaires. And these are the people like John Melanthe yes. and, and uh, uh, you know, Biddles and... and, and uh, uh, O'Fallons and people and people like that. Some of them were even slave owners, because mm -hmm. that's what you did in St. Louis, and you were white and you became successful. So they were very much integrated into the antebellum, you know, society. Society, and uh, they came here because it was easy to get here, either from New Orleans mm -hmm. up the river, or I didn't realize till I wrote the book how connected by river we are to the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, if you had like a kayak, you could go from New York City <laughs> right. and you knew what you were doing all the way to St. Louis. And also it was a French city. It was a Catholic city. The French hated the English too. So it's like, wow, this is great. It's like, it's named after a saint, a lot of Catholics there, and they don't like the British. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a perfect fit. But then in the 1840s, something totally different happened. The famine which they don't call the famine in Ireland. They call it, in Celtic, they call it Angorta Moor, which means the great hunger. Mm. And because the feeling among most, I would say most Irish, and a lot of Irish Americans is that when you say a famine, somehow you think that it's somehow engineered by God or bacteria right. or something. It was some unstoppable force of nature. And, 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 yeah. and, and like the English didn't make the potatoes turn black, but once they did, they were exporting food out of Ireland, and there was a feeling in the Irish government that this is the equivalent of the final solution for the Irish, like starve them to death. And uh, many Irish see it as equivalent in that sense, in that limited sense of, of, of a precursor to the Holocaust. And in fact, a million did die, like right there in the, in the ditches. I mean, it's... It, 
it, it, it's, we hear about the famine. We hear sanitized versions of it. And, and the story always turns out okay because our family made it and survived the famine. But it was awful. Entire villages were starving. And then a million people moved to America and Australia. And there was very little left after, this, after the, mm-hmm. the famine in, in Ireland. But yeah, they were exporting food and doing nothing to, mm-hmm. to alleviate uh, the problem. In fact, it's interesting, in, the, tw- in the, 11th, the 12th century, the 1100s, an English pope gave an English king Ireland. This is <laughs> 800 years ago. Gave it to him. He had a good reason. He, he said he wanted, he wanted the king to instill virtue and morality in the Irish people. And so, here, take Ireland, give these people some morality. And virtue, and you know the Irish have not thanked them to this day. <laughs> so, so, so in the 1840s, these people are arriving in St. Louis and other cities. For one thing, they heard that the discrimination, the anti-Catholic sentiment in St. Louis, wasn't as bad as it was on the East Coast. So okay. it, there was still a lot of prejudice when they came here, but it wasn't as bad. Mm-hmm. But it was we're still, thinking places like Boston, Boston, yeah, yeah. New York, uh, New York. Uh, but God, I mean, how bad was it in New York if, if it wasn't that bad in St. Louis? Because sure. I even remember, remember my grandfather and his brother talking about, oh yeah, they had no Irish need apply here. They were all pretty much limited to uh, uh, Kerry Patch, you know, the neighborhoods we, we talked to. Kerry Patch was, was, was the big one. And then the whole process of how do you assimilate? How do you become an American is something that really interested me as well. And it also kind of made me wonder, well, so who's Irish today? You can have an Irish last name, as, but, uh, or, or I should say you can have a non-Irish last name, mm-hmm. but still identify with being Irish because mm-hmm. of marriage is, you know. Uh, or you can have an Irish name and uh, uh, they're African-American Murphys. And, you know, to what extent do they relate to being Irish or, or, or not? Sure. So, so I kind of came to the conclusion that, that if, you want, if you relate to being Irish, no matter what your name is, go right ahead. Come on in. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're welcome. Well, and we're, we're so, many, so many generations removed from this period of time where we had these massive waves of immigration from Europe. Yeah. Um, I think we don't often think about what it might have been like at that time. We often... Um, think more about how it's how they've succeeded, you know, how they successfully assimilated or maybe unsuccessfully assimilated. Yeah. But um, well, you know, at this be- point in time, it's pretty. We see a seamless assimilation into quote unquote American culture. So among white Europeans, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, but then it was harder for other people, like the Irish. Like my grandfather, a great grandfather, he had a brogue and he was really Irish, and he'd go to Ireland. Once there was an amnesty, you know, in mm-hmm. the 1920s, he would go to Ireland. And I mean, he was, he was Irish. He lived in America and he got citizenship. And he was mentally in, in every way that he could be Irish. But my grandfather, he was an American. He related to being Irish, sure. but he wasn't really that much discriminated against. I mean, they didn't try to burn his house down. Mm-hmm. In the 1850s, there were riots in St. Louis where they burned down uh, uh, whole blocks of Irish neighborhoods. Uh, and, and there was like hand-to-hand combat in the streets mm-hmm. all the way out to 7th Street in a riot in 1854. So, I mean, it was, there was a path to assimilation, but it wasn't totally seamless. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was kind of, so after you lose your brogue, 
and you know you dress in American clothes and you know but still it was a big deal when my grandfather married a Protestant mm, I mean sure. that was a, and it was a big deal when my dad married a Protestant so I kind of grew up with this ethnic awareness of on one side my mother's side was German and my father's side was Irish and as a kid I actually thought in some kind of abstract way that I had two different kinds of blood in me because mm. both sides of the family were always telling us kids well it's a good thing you're half Irish otherwise you'd be as boring as your mother's side of the family <laughs> you know or my mom would say you know kind of in private it's a good thing you know that you're half German because otherwise you'd be as worthless <laughs> sure well and I think that that's so I mean how American is it to to know that you've got you know half of you is one thing and half of you is another or even further down the generations you know a mutt basically I lived but, in Europe for several years uh, and people couldn't get over the idea that well you Irish American German, Italian African? Mm -hmm. I mean because in Germany everybody's German pretty mm -hmm. much or was then and like we do have this hyphen in front of us and what interested me too is why do we cling to the past why is it interesting to us why do we want to identify why is it not just to identify as being an American? Why is it important to, you know, to, to be Polish American or you know, whatever? Mm -hmm. Because these stories, I think, at least in my family, are very vivid and they really tap into a lot of basic you know, feelings and fears and, and hopes. And I think these are, these are passed along. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only, been, it's only been in one lifetime or less because uh, that there hasn't been not so much in St. Louis, but in a lot of other places, southern Missouri, definitely, where it still exists, anti-Catholic anti feelings. Mm -hmm. and, 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 why, and why is that? And that's something you and I talked about earlier, like mm -hmm. when we were just talking about you know, having this, this conversation. Like why are there a lot of Catholics in St. Louis and why aren't there Catholics in southern Missouri? And why are there certain parts of the state that, where there are a lot of Polish people live and mm -hmm. other, and that really interests me because of course we you know we know that the Irish came to St. Louis moved to Cary Patch and then the Italians moved to an Italian neighborhood and then later the hill and North St. Louis was largely Polish and and uh, German was like south of Market mm. Street and my grandfather said you knew where your neighborhood was and you knew where it stopped and if you wandered into like say the Polish neighborhood, or they wandered into your neighborhood, they would chase you mm -hmm. and maybe beat you up. Or if it was kids, maybe they'd cut your tie off or you know, cut your jacket up into little pieces mm -hmm. or something just to let you know that you, weren't, you, know, you weren't, weren't welcome there. So in the case of Southern Missouri, I mean the Catholic churches are really kind of few and far between. The whole diocese goes from like, St. Louis down to Perry County, I think. Yeah, even all the way across mm -hmm. the state. I learned that with the whole to, uh, the, the redistricting or, or the new yeah. diocese that they, you know, with all like, the church closings and stuff and joining of parishes recently in the St. Louis Archdiocese, yeah. you know, I had no idea how, how far this spread. How are we going to get enough Catholics together to justify sure. having a diocese? Sure. But, but the, the people who were moving there in the 19th century, in the early and mid-19th century, they were largely Protestants who came from Great Britain and moved to Tennessee and uh, 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 Kentucky mm. and it was kind of Protestant culture and Protestant towns and they moved to southern Missouri and all of these ancient feuds between Irish and Catholics 
we brought over for Europe. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, you wouldn't remember when President Kennedy ran, but that was a big deal. Sure. A Catholic president. In the White House? <laughs> he'll just call the, the Pope up and up every morning and ask him what he should do. <laughs> <laughs> but but this, is, this is getting to an interesting place, which is, you know, the, the big, one of the big, you know, themes of our year here at Missouri Humanities is this idea of roots and routes, the movement and settlement of Missourians. And you yeah. talk about, um, you know, why different people from different places chose different places in Missouri. And that's something that we're really exploring this year is, you know, why did people move and, and what happened when they did? And um, I think what's interesting, you know, you talk about the Irish in particular, obviously, but, you know, it, it's so fascinating to me to think about these anti-Irish or anti-anything sentiment because everyone was from somewhere else at that point, exactly. you know? So, you know, and, and not to be disrespectful to any indigenous peoples, but, yeah. you know, the people doing the, the mockery and the, the, the hazing and all that was someone else from somewhere else. So, exactly. so what was it, you know, and, and, you know, this could be speaking pretty broadly, but, you know, using the Irish as an example, what caused that sentiment? Was it just because they were the new kids on the block? Or, or what was it that and we, caused and we it? We can talk more generally than just about the Irish, actually. Like, one of the things I learned in writing the third book, Places to Pray, mm -hmm. I spent a year driving down back roads and checking out little towns and visiting and photographing Catholic churches mm -hmm. and, and talking about where the people came from and why they built there. So all of these people, whether like in St. Uh, uh, Clover Bottom, Missouri, uh, there's a church called St. Anne there. It's Polish. Uh, uh, down the street is St. Gertrude's, you know, all, also Polish. Uh, lots of German churches all over like, you know, wine country around the Missouri River. Um, Italian churches, uh, Irish. Um, Nobody really wanted to come to America. I mean, if you were doing great in Europe, why would you get on a boat, risk your life, spend maybe six weeks coming over uh, and, and landing with nothing? The mm -hmm. Irish spoke the language, but most other of these ethnic groups didn't. You land into a place where you have no real prospects. You're headed for somewhere where there's some other people who speak your language, whether it's Clover Bottom, Missouri, or North St. Louis. Um, and... And this is really interesting. You find out that people really don't want you to be there. Uh, and then you've got to figure out how to make a living. And what interests me is the first thing they did, one of the first things they did, was build a church. Mm -hmm. And they incorporated their best uh, architects and their best stained glass window guys and their, their marble workers, stone workers. And it's like they built on a hillside in Herman, Missouri, or Washington, Missouri, or Frankenstein, Missouri, or wherever, an example that showed everyone the best of who they were. Mm. And it's like, and it is, a, you know, I would say, I can understand why these people have kind of a chip on their shoulder, too. It's like, yeah, we're here, mm -hmm. and that's our church, mm -hmm. and it's really beautiful. And maybe our English isn't too good, but our kids, English is going to be better than ours. You know what? You might want to get to know us, you know, because we're not going anywhere. Mm. And, and now it's gotten to the point where, you know, uh, people are, everyone is proud of these 
places. And, mm -hmm. and it's just a, a, a great story. But it's kind of the American story, whether you're, you know, Spanish or, or, or West, Western European or from the Great, great Britain or whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's a story of trying to assimilate into America mm -hmm. or not assimilating. And the whole time that I'm writing this too, I'm thinking this story is so different from the African-American story. Sure. And, and, uh, and also trying to be very, very careful that we don't try to equate the experience or the prejudices of Europeans coming over here to, to the experience of African-Americans coming over here. We came, I mean, maybe the Irish were like almost slaves in their own country. They, it was a capital offense to speak your own language or practice your own religion or, or to marry someone of you know, the other faith. But it wasn't like they were slaves like they would be in Mississippi or St. Louis. Sure, sure. So I, I just think that if we're gonna try to move forward and, 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 and tr try to create a better society, it's a really good idea to at least visit how we all got here and what our relationships were along the way and why we like or don't like each other now. Maybe we can get past all of this. And St. Louis is a city too where, I've got a book coming out in April on the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. And why do we all love the World's Fair so much? And like, when you say you're writing a book on the World's Fair, oh my God, I've got to read that. And I hope they do. <laughs> but, but, like St. Louis is a place, and there's some places that are more like this than others. And having grown up in St. Louis, well, my God, look out the window. We're in St. Charles right now. I mean, except for the cars on the street, it could be 1860. Right. Um, St. Charles, St. Louis, a lot of places in Missouri, uh, the past travels differently through them than it does some other places. And the past has a tendency to like, like get stuck and linger little bits of it. And so, I mean, do you ever have this feeling like, like over your shoulder, like the, the past, it's <laughs> always right there. It's in the architecture, it's mm -hmm. in the parishes, it's in the, it's in the stories we tell, it's in our attitudes, the attitudes that we have. Mm -hmm. And so if the past plays that big a role in our daily lives, I wanna know more about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just glad I had history teachers when I was in school who didn't ruin it for me. <laughs> Absolutely, I can relate with that. And I think, you know, what's what's very interesting and I think very timely is that, you know, the story of, of people moving and people settling, putting down roots and um, the story doesn't always change. The characters do, you know, yeah. we talk about Irish immigration, we talk about Italians, Germans, you know, all those different kind of yeah. Eastern, Western European countries. But up into more modern time, you know, in recent past, seeing waves of refugees. You know, you talk about nobody wanted to come to America. They they did because they needed better. And if they were doing well in Europe, why would they leave? You like, know, and very yeah. similar to today with, you know, refugees, you know, 20, 30 years ago with Bosnia and Jewish more recently. refugees mm -hmm. moving to University City back in the 70s. Sure. And, and Syria and Afghanistan more recently. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it important to to make that distinction to tell these stories and, and why what makes people interested in those stories? Because everybody's story is also your story to some degree. And and, and there are differences as well because you know all the various various cultures are, are mm -hmm. different but uh, our parish was uh, f for many years was St. Ambrose when we lived in the in the city oh, yeah. which is an Italian an Italian parish. And that's a whole neighborhood that is so proud of its Italian past. 
And I mean, to the point where there are still, there, the, the, people perceive the difference between like Lombardies from Northern Italy and the Sicilians. Oh, yes. From, you know, oh, yes. And, and, and they even have, sometimes it's friendly ribbing and sometimes it's a little more serious than that. Uh, you can run into some, some differences of opinion between some of the Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics in, you know, in, in, in St. Louis. So it's just important that I hear your story and you hear my story so that we can just be, when you hear a story and you integrate it into your, into your mind, you're bigger, you know, mm -hmm. you know more, you're, you're, you can understand more. And together, I think we're more able to plot a future that makes sense it is more tolerant. Mm -hmm. So your three books, so three published books, one coming up. So we've got The Candy Men with the story of Switzers. And I really should have called it Candy Men and Women because all the good <laughs> ideas like making licorice in the mm -hmm. tenement house and things. Came from women? Yeah, my no. great-grandmother. Great uh, the whole business was bailed out by my Aunt Nellie. Oh, wow. She died in 1925. She Maybe left, you need to write an epilogue. She left Carrie Patch. <laughs> when she was like 16 years old, mm -hmm. ran away with a mule trader, went out west, traded mules, came back to Kerry Patch, totally unrepentant, without the guy. He, he, we, she lost him somewhere <laughs> along the way and had enough money to be able to bail out the candy factory. I think uh, she's a story so, right there too. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. And all the way up to like, you know, my own mother. I mean, the women in my family have always been smarter. <laughs> <laughs> But I couldn't call it candy men and women because that's it, it didn't ring quite as well. Candy yeah. persons, candy people. Sometimes, yeah, candy people. Well, I think it's also. I feel like it's maybe it's a little bit of a playoff of the Willy Wonka, the Candy Man. It know, is a little bit. Yeah, I it mean, makes sense. Like every once in a while, please just give us a break. Let's. Is it okay every once in a while to just say man at the end <laughs> if we if we try to assure you that we're not chauvinistic sure. about it? Okay, thank you. So, so candy men, uh, story of Switzer's yes. licorice, the Irish in St. Louis, and then places places to pray. And then, you know, even linking your upcoming book on the World's Fair, I think they all tell very different stories, but there's a lot that connects them. Um, can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, because I wonder about that a lot. Uh, the connection between Candyman and the Irish, that's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. It's my own personal stories growing up, uh, hanging out at the factory, uh, uh, it was, it was funny. All, all the older guys in, in my family in the, when I was a kid, I mean, these were people who actually grew up in Kerry Patch and, and remember, you know, people from Ireland. And uh, they'd have a couple of drinks at Christmas and they'd, you know, they'd proudly describe themselves as candy men, like as some honorific <laughs> title. We're candy men because it was a whole part of the culture yeah. that went all the, way, all the way back to Ireland. So that and the broader story of Irish. And then I think... And then there's a connection between that and places to pray is because writing the Irish in St. Louis, I became more aware of the importance of the role of religion, mm -hmm. Catholicism specifically, uh, in, in this whole process of becoming American and assimilating and in people's lives. So um, that gave me an opportunity, the, the, the book on prayer, to write m even more broadly about um, other ethnic groups, all Catholic. It wasn't so broad that I wouldn't know how to write a book about every church, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim. I mean, that would be a great book, but they only gave me like 200 pages. <laughs> sure. So I, 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 again, I wanted to specialize on Catholic churches, mm -hmm. well, because I'm Catholic. Um, and also I had to narrow it 
and I thought it'd be best to write about what I knew. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't like you telling their story. I mean, they want to sure. tell their story, and you tell your story. And then the World's Fair, what's that got to do with anything? Let's see. Let me think. Uh, what's St. Louis? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's 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 people. It's connection. You know, I think that you know you brought up earlier. You know, why are people so fascinated by the World's Fair? And I think it's because it's this idea of people from quite literally all across the world coming together at this place to celebrate yeah. and to remember and to um, look at human progress and yeah. and sometimes not so human progress. You know, there's some some well, dicey things in the World's Fair, but there, you know, there are a couple of different kinds of. I think in my research, what I saw, if I can vastly generalize, generalize here, sure, there there are two kinds of books about the World's Fair. One of them is, it, it was the most awful, horrible example of colonialism, racism, uh, and, and, and that the only progress that's made is by white Europeans, and mm -hmm. that's how we define progress. And so they have these human zoos and people on display and all of that. And that's definitely part of the fair. That was definitely Absolutely, a part of America sure. at the time. Right. It's really tricky going back and looking at the past, and particularly in what they call now the cultural wars and, and historical revisionism. Like, it is so easy to go back and condemn the way people were thinking. I think if I would have been in 1860 living in St. Louis, I don't know what I would have thought. Sure. I didn't have the, I didn't have the advantage, nor did my family have the advantage, nor did practically anybody have the advantage of, of, of what we know today mm -hmm. and, and the lessons we've learned about trying to be more tolerant and more empathetic and, and more accepting of people who aren't just like us. So I wanted to go back to the World's Fair. Okay, that's one kind of book they wrote about the fair. Yes. <laughs> Boy, that was a long meandering journey. <laughs> no, back but there. it's a very important okay. conversation. I'm the, glad you brought the, it up. The other was, this was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to the world. The most, mm -hmm. And I think the first book is written largely a lot by academics because if you're writing about something, you need to find Something. You need to be critical. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, yeah. Uh, the other one is God. They invented the ice cream cone there, and you could drink iced tea, and it was really, like. What interested me about the fair was how did people back then who went to the fair and my grandfather sold newspapers at the fair. He mm. was like twelve years old. Oh my gosh! From Kerry Patch, he'd take this streetcar and he'd sell papers at the fair. But like, what what was it like to go to the fair? You see these pictures, and and it's this amazing ivory city and the lights the way the lights mm -hmm. at night you would have thought you were in heaven and it was kind of an extension of the city beautiful movement where like our cities are a mess st louis in 1904 was the fourth largest city in america and it was a mess mm -hmm. like a lot of the roads weren't paved the water was so dirty they were only able to clean it up like a, a month maybe less than a month before the fair started oh my gosh in st louis if you turn on a tap of water something very akin to mud would come out. And that wouldn't look good, the cascades cascading right. down, spraying <laughs> mud all over everybody. That's a whole other story about how they, got, how they got that fixed. But what they were doing was trying to create a utopia, in a way, mm -hmm. that was just so dazzling and would show how much progress had been made in the, 200, in the 100 years mm -hmm. since uh, they, the, the World's Fair you know, was... And here are the big machines, and look, flying machines, and now we can send messages through the air, mm -hmm. like on radio waves. And I think, what was that like to go there in 1904 
And what was a typical St. Louisan like? And what was, mm -hmm. what was their apartment like? They probably didn't have electricity at home. They probably had gas. Sure. They didn't have a car because there were only 200 automobiles registered in 1904 in all of St. Louis. Yeah. The notion of a flying machine to go to Forest Park and actually see a dirigible or, you know, people flying through the air. These weren't even like airplanes. These were like big gas bags. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, telephones and x-rays and baby incubators and all of these things. It must have just absolutely blown them away. And I'm thinking, today, we're not easily blown away, are we? We're not. Like, what would it take? Okay, like, you got one of these too, right? A cell phone, yes. Yeah. You got <laughs> not one just of these. a cell phone, a smartphone. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, and like, like, everything that human beings know is on is on this. Mm -hmm. So like, what's going to amaze us? A time machine, maybe? We'd be amazed for maybe a weekend. Sure. <laughs> but people back then, you know, they, they were still, you know, like riding horses and carriages. And so I, I think it's pretty cool that at the beginning of a century, it was, well, the name of the book is Prelude to a Century. Oh, okay. So it, it's, and it's at the publishers right now, they're proofreading it and correcting my grammar and, <laughs> teaching me how to use commas more properly. Uh, but it's kind of a, a look. I'd like people to, to feel that, that maybe they had gone to the fair and seen some aspect of it uh, through the eyes, not of the way we look at it today, but the way people would have looked at it back then. This is the first interview I've had on the book because it's not out yet. No, but this is perfect. So, so this is good practice. Yeah, it is. And, and it's fascinating. And I, you know, I think, you know, it's an interesting perspective on history that we don't often find anymore. I think you were right that a lot of history is written by by scholars or by people critiquing it, which is perfectly yeah. needed and necessary and, and, and informative. Oh, yeah. However, those are the books I consult to make sure my facts. Are exactly. Straight. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it's entirely fascinating to to have that desire like you do to not be somebody from 2023 writing a book about 1904. And you're you, supposed you to want, think like I... Right. You want to, to write it and have people be able to picture what it was actually like, not in 2023 thinking back to 1904, but and realize that what it would have been like. we're all limited by the times that we live in, sure. including now. Like, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. In a hundred years from now, they'll look at us and go, oh my God, they, let's fill in the blank, ate meat. Or they, uh, or they thought this. So they, mm -hmm. it, it's hard to it's hard to think about what you don't, what you haven't thought of. Right. And, and as we kind of you know start to wrap up the conversation, something I want you to to think about, and you might have to take a minute to think about it, and that's okay. Um, thinking about the research you've done, the stories that you've told, and you know, and again, we're talking about a lot of this in the context of of our signature series, this roots and routes movement and settlement of Missourians. Yeah. What do you hope is the lasting impact of your writing? You know, you write for a reason. You know, you, you did mention that, you know, this is, this is fun for you. You're doing this because you get to tell the stories that you want to tell now, finally. You know, no one's telling you what to do. Yeah. Um, but I have to think that you've got a, a goal. You know, what, what do you want your writing, your books to, to create? What kind of impact do you want them to create, you know, now? You know, it's, it's funny. Sometimes, sometimes you have a goal, but you can't even define it yourself, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, or you look back over a few books and you go, oh, 
oh, that's what I was doing. <laughs> or you look back over your whole life and you go, you don't see any patterns when you're doing, living your life or doing whatever you're doing. You don't really see the threads of the pattern sometimes till you, you look back. But <clears throat> I think if there is any goal that all of these books share is that we're all a part of the same story and this is my little part of the story and this is your part and look this is how they interact mm -hmm. and this is how I can learn from you and you can learn from me uh, uh, how we can understand each other particularly this process all of us most of us are like three or four generations from beyond the shores of the continental you know mm -hmm. United United States so I'd like to learn more about like what your family went through to get here and, and here's my story. There was a judge in St. Louis who, uh, uh, he, he was one of the most prominent judges in St. Louis. He disguised the fact that he was Irish because it was so shameful. And he got into a lawsuit and they were gonna bring out the fact that he had grown up poor and Irish and he killed himself Jeez. because the shame was so bad. Like knowing little things like that and and taking these little facts and stories, whether it's you know from the Irish story or from other story or the World's Fair or churches or whatever, the more facts you have and more puzzle pieces you can put together, the more equipped you are to be able to live in the age that we live in now, and the more you're going to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Like uh, like when I leave here, I'm going to walk up and down the street in St. Charles, knowing something about. Uh, architecture or knowing something about art or knowing something about that the French used to live here. Mm -hmm. How could you enjoy the experience of St. Charles if you didn't know that it used to be a French community mm -hmm. or that, that, that later the Germans came? Or you go to a little cemetery in, uh, say, Old Mines, Missouri, and there's the, the church, St. Joachim, and uh, it is so remote, this little town, that some of the people still speak with a slightly French version of English. Is this the Papa French? Yeah, you yes. know about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Right. And um, uh, and you go to the graveyard there, mm -hmm. and you'll see that the oldest graves are in French, and say that the people were born in France. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, that's something else. 1793, so and so was born in 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 France. Then there's a whole strata of the graveyard that are German, because mm -hmm. the Germans came. And then there's a whole strata of the Irish because they were building the railroad and the Irish came. And if you know what to look for, you're just going to enjoy your life more. Mm -hmm. And it's all going to make more sense. Otherwise, if they just plop you right down in the middle of like America in the year 2023, you'd never be able to figure it out. <laughs> right. So did that make any sense? Absolutely. I love it. I think it's, it's, you know, I like to use the term layers of history. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not one yeah. layer. It's not linear. There's so many different yeah. layers to it. And it's all these different stories coming together to create the story that we now know or don't yet know. And, so it's not you know, like the book, the Irish book, for example. Uh, it's not like there's a thesis. There's basically a question. What is this? What is the Irish American experience mm -hmm. in specifically in St. Louis? There are about 80 five, 90 chapters, each one dealing with some aspect, a story, a person, a neighborhood, an event. And what you do is like, like a diamond has different facets to it and you hold it up to the light and it looks different. Each one of these is a facet to a, a story 
where maybe if you read the whole thing, you have a better idea of what it's like, uh, of, 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 of what the ex Irish ex American experience is like. Mm -hmm. like. But somebody should write the Jewish St. Louis experience, and someone should write the Spanish and the German, and you know, everybody, Everybody should write a book. I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, folks, if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Just write a page a day, huh? Right. After a year, you'll have a big fat book. Exactly. And so segueing a little bit, um, you know, as we wrap up, your, your next book on the World's Fair comes out when? April. It? April. Okay. So I have it on good authority that the podcast will be out in time for people to listen. So hopefully this gets people a little bit excited about this book and, um, you know. Bring me back. I would love to come. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We actually, so next year, it might be the perfect fit because next year our theme is called Missouri Marvels, um, kind yeah. of this idea of technology, innovation, and the humanities. Ooh. World's Fair would be a great conversation for that. It'd be perfect. Yeah. So, so maybe we'll see Patrick Murphy back here very, very soon. I hope so. <laughs> well, Patrick, thank you so much. This was a, a great conversation. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. And, and thank you for, for doing the research, for, you know, for writing and, and telling stories and doing your part to just help us all understand each other a little bit more. Well, Thank I you. love the way you do interviews. It's like just sitting here talking with a friend. Yeah, it's that's really, the goal. <laughs> really fun with no, at least I had no clear direction. Thank you for guiding <laughs> me. I appreciate that. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to Patrick Murphy for joining us and for his dedication to preserving the past. If you're interested in Patrick's books, they can be found at many independent bookstores or online through Reedy Press at readypress.com. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and stay engaged by following us on social media at Mo Humanities or finding Missouri Humanities on YouTube. For more about our 2023 signature series, visit mohumanities.org. I'm Caitlin Yeager. Join us next time as we explore more about the roots and routes of Missourians.